0: I want to thank both of you for for joining me on on the deep dive. Again, the book is called "The Flag and the Cross: White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to American Democracy." This is clearly a, a very heady, but yet very important topic. So, I'm going to be a little biased here. I'm gonna and I'm going to start my first question with the Philip in the room. You know, so I'm going to kind of go to another Philip and and ask, you know, really, really, what is the crux of white Christian nationalism? I think it's a big question, but it allows us to sort of level set as some listeners might not be as knowledgeable or as in line with those terms, particularly when put together. So let's start there.
1: So uh, one way of talking about it is as what we call a deep story, which is a kind of a mythological version of American history. It basically goes like this. America was founded as a Christian nation. The founders were Orthodox Christians. The founding documents are based on the Bible. America has a special mission from God to spread freedom and democracy around the world. And in order to carry out that mission, it's been given, uh, has been blessed with power and prosperity. But the presence of non-whites, non-Christians, Ah, uh, non-native-born citizens on U.S. soil is threatening that mission. That's that's really, really the crux of of what Christian nationalism is, and it's a deep story in two senses. It's it's historically deep. In the book, we show that you can trace it all the way back to the late 1600s, and it's really culturally deep in the sense that it uh, it's kind of the water that a lot of conservative Christians women and not just conservative Christians, either. Some of these ideas, you know, are also out there, you know, under the label of American exceptionalism, for example, and are embraced by by non-Christians.
0: And, and Samuel, I want to turn to you and and ask you, there's clearly a distinction between what let's call baseline Christianity and then this now you know, new, somewhat new reality, though. As as Phil said, this has been weaved in to the American narrative from the beginning of there being an American narrative. But I, I think we are seeing this sort of jet fuel sort of reaction to it, right? So I want to also spend a little bit of time on that distinction between just garden variety Christianity, if we can, if we can call it that, and White Christian nationalism and, and how those are intertwined with one another, obviously, but also distinct from one another.
2: Right. And I think this is a great point to, to bring up and something that we want to we talk about in the book, but I think it bears repeating in a, in a variety of different ways that uh, even though we're not theologians and we don't we don't claim to be in the book, we're, and we're not making we're not making normative claims about what Christianity real Christianity should and shouldn't be. Uh, so so please don't take us to to be saying that, like, no real Christian would be a Christian nationalist or that these things are like or that persons who subscribe to white Christian nationalism are not Christians somehow. Like the, that, the fact is, like the, the vast majority of, of Americans who subscribe to Christian nationalist ideology are, in fact, Christian. They go to church. They practice. They you know. So uh, and yet we, we believe that they are best thought of as distinct things. In that normative Christianity, or Christianity as we often think of orthodoxy, or 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 how that is often construed, is is really a, uh, something that adheres to uh, I think traditional conceptions of what it means to be a Christian Orthodox creeds, or uh, whether that is in Catholicism or Protestantism or, or 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 Eastern Orthodoxy, that doesn't have to amount to any kind of Christian nationalist ideology. This belief that the nation was founded by people like us, for people like us, and that we should institutionalize our own privilege in society. That really is white Christian nationalism. What Phil was talking about, this deep story that people like us, white, native-born, traditionalist Christians founded the country. It works best when when our ideas and people like us are the leaders. And so we ought to institutionalize that kind of privilege. And and I actually think it's, it's really good to think about white Christian nationalism as, as in many ways, a response to the perceived loss of power that groups feel when like traditional majority groups in the United States, white male Christian, Anglo-Protestant Christians feel that their, their cultural and political influence is being threatened. We actually have experimental evidence, not not me, I I point to uh, uh, some experimental psychologists, Mara Alkire and uh, Mikey Pasek. Who have done experiments to show that that when white christians are confronted with uh say information about their own numerical decline or their demographic decline they actually respond with greater christian nationalism it, it is something that 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 perceived threat evokes this idea that we need to circle the wagons culturally and we need to take our country back for people like us so that is different from christianity properly understood i mean you know i think even though even though certainly to be clear many people who subscribe to christian nationalism are christians I think conceptually, I think it's good to talk about those two things as very, very different. So that we can also enlist Christians who really care about the authenticity of their own faith to say, you know what, this this may be not an element of your faith that you want to have mixed in, uh, even though it is very much the case uh, within the white evangelical church as we're seeing.
0: Absolutely. and. You know when I when I read through the book and it's a great book, right? And so, in case I I haven't already said that, I think the the book lays out in a, a very concise but yet detailed way the argument or the warning of of what white Christian nationalism can do to a democracy that is not that is already on tenuous footing for a lot of different reasons. So I think the the blueprint is there. I did, however, have like a continuous befuddlement as to a a lot of different things, right? And I'll start with the the first one of them, and and Phil, I'm going to kick it back to you on this, is that this notion of the ownership of the Christian narrative stands in, in such a stark relief to civil rights movements, abolitionist movements, great thinkers and theologians and other social activists that are driving for social change also within a Christian construct. And, And one of the things that has always confused me, even before reading this book, is how conservatives so astutely try to own the Christian narrative while the true social change that has been in this country for centuries has been often led by Christians of color, those that, that are, are women and and come and even come from different faiths, I'm not restricting it just to Christianity. So that disconnect has been always confusing to me. So as, as someone who's studied this, how do you and, and how have you also wrestled with that reality?
1: Well, uh, you know, I've not got to plug myself too often, but I did really actually write a whole other book about this uh, called uh, American Covenant, which, you know, I talk a bit about Christian nationalism, but I really, the main purpose of that book is is precisely to kind of try to understand this tradition that you're talking about as an alternative way, you know, of thinking about Christianity and democracy and their relationship in, in American history. And I think, there are a couple of really, really important differences. One is that this, this other tradition, which I call following one of my graduate school mentors, Robert Bella, the, the American civil religion, that it, it draws on what biblical scholars call the, the prophetic tradition. This is, you know, the tradition that emphasizes social justice and lifting up uh, lifting up the least of these, you know, which talks about in the, in the kind of uh, language that Martin Luther King use of a sort of a march toward a, a promised land or in his other language, uh, you know, the the beloved community, which, and so like the key difference is that Christian nationalism, or one key difference is Christian nationalism looks backwards to some supposed lost golden age. And the civil religious tradition looks forward towards achieving a promised land that, you know, is always over the mountaintop. It's, you, you never get there, but you're always marching towards it and, uh, you know, trying in this kind of religious language just somehow even only for a moment make the, the kingdom of god visible on earth that is you know a kind of a beloved community of you know of, of you know sort of a belonging equality where you see all of your fellow americans as people who are created in the in the image of god and you know you're right that this is a that this is a tradition and, you know, I mean, certainly there have been plenty of white Christians and non-Christians who played a role, but in which African-American theology and political thought has been just absolutely essential, um, you know, Frederick Douglass, W. E. B. Du Bois, you know, Martin Luther King, James Baldwin, you know, just to kind of, you know, touch on some of the best known figures in in, in this in this tradition. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things about this is in some ways it, it sort of draws on this same idea about you know trying to you know, think about america as a sort of a, a promised land but instead of thinking about it, it's like this is our land and we need to push out or exterminate you know the people who are occupying it uh you, you sort of think about it more as a kind of a you know covenantal community where you know people who you know embrace our values and want to be in, in you know and uh and want to be part of this political community can be you know a more more inclusive inclusive vision so thanks for that question
0: absolutely you know and sam i'm going to kick it over to you and my other befuddlement which is the um notion of of newness in in some of this right and as, as you as you guys stated and laid out in the book this is a a story rooted in the origin of the american story and the the Ku Klux Klan was a Christian-based organization, right? And they've been burning crosses and riding horses for a long time, right? And so I'm, I'm fast-forwarding through that narrative to say, you know, why are we always seeming to rediscover the reality of white Christian nationalism? You know, because I, I remember years ago, I read an article in the New York Times talking about Gun shows and how books were being sold through the gun show network, you know, the sort of Turner Diaries things and you know, these sort of survivalist realities, these people thinking about lost causes, how they refer to the civil to civil war. And so it's a it's a long question, but I'm the, the point is why are we thinking about this as something new in, in the popular sense, right? As instead of grappling with the way this is sort of cooked into. Cooked into the recipe, sort so to speak,
2: no, I, I think you said it you said it really well that that has been so cooked into the recipe. it's it's very much a part of our national conversation, this kind of like mythic story. this this uh, for a, a long period of time, we have just we have, we have confused a lot of concepts together. I mean, I think Phil has done such great work kind of disentangling what is civil religion versus this kind of white Christian nationalism narrative. What are if there are benefits to kind of understanding our, our collective identity as Americans and the good parts of that and how we celebrate the kinds of things, the ideals and the civic virtues that we feel like hey, are, are the things that we really want to be proud of versus these kinds of like ethnocultural nationalist ideals that certain groups want to say no the country is about this and always has been and always should be and so let's make that law you know to hell with everybody else i think we are we are just now being able to effectively i think disentangle those we we have only recently and I, so as early as as we see anglo-protestant christian nationalism in in american history we've only recently started collecting data where where we could try to identify and measure what is this thing that we're talking about and how does it affect americans attitudes and i think that is actually a relatively recent thing being able to collect data on on those specific questions i think uh, several of the problems emerge and and so i've got a lot of thoughts on this but i i'll, I'll just name a couple of them i think Uh, This is a problem in the social sciences that we we look for any opportunity that we can to minimize religion as an effective uh, as something that actually does stuff in in America like that is that is a powerful force. We try to explain it away with things like class or make it epiphenomenal or some other kind of like social thing that we'd rather talk about. Uh, That is certainly the case in sociology. And so we do this thing where like, you know, Barack Obama wins two straight elections uh, and we immediately moved to say, you know what, the Christian right, they had their day and now they're completely ineffective and they're gone and we don't need to worry about them anymore. And we start writing books about before Barack Obama's term even ends. We start writing books about how white Christian ne- America is, is no more and is really has, you know, is inconsequential. And then, you know, surprise, uh, we miscalculated because we we I think wanted to tell ourselves uh, that like, hey, this really isn't something we need to worry about uh, without really paying attention to what's going on. Uh, I think we also have, and this is, I think, a con, an unfortunate consequences of uh, of letting uh, journalists take language that we use and narratives that we use and kind of make them the end all be all of our conversation. So, for example, the conversation about white evangelicals, when Trump wins, you could just go down the headlines and talk about white evangelicalism, white evangel, white evangelicals, eight out of, or you know, eight out of ten, or four out of five, you know, four out of five voted for Trump. And for like the first whole year and a half or two years of Trump's office was this thing about white evangelicals without digging into what exactly is it about white evangelicals that drove them to want to support a guy like Trump. I think that has caused us to really dive into what are the underlying assumptions and ideologies that that unite not only white evangelicals, but many white Catholics and many white mainline Protestants and many even any even some white seculars to say Trump is my guy. And, you know, who else is my guy? Victor Orban and Putin. Uh, and all of these other authoritarian uh, leaders. I think only now are we starting to to really be able to zero in on exactly what this underlying cultural ideology, this expectation, this deep story that Phil is talking about, this vision for America's future, with more precise language. And now we're able to look back and to say, well, you know, this is a this is a thread that has united all of these conversations, and it has ebbed and flowed throughout America's history in response to this kind of. Perceived racial and ethnic and cultural upheaval and gets marshaled back and gets kind of like you know political uh, political leaders are able to like rally aggrieved you know working class or dis, uh, you know uh, or aggravated white audiences to say yes this is who we are as Americans and we need to take the country back uh, for all our kind of people so I guess that's uh, without droning on too much more I would just say I think that is we are now able to I think identify with more precise language and data exactly what was going on this whole time. I, I, this is probably the only time anyone will hear me say this on the show. I'm glad that Trump came up
0: um, <laughs> in the context of of this conversation because I, I remember early on when he was running for president, the the argument was that there's no way that you know white evangelicals who are considered people in the in the South and out in the you know maybe Southwest would vote for like a New Yorker. With a, a checkered personal history and, you know, all the blah, blah. Right. Like that was sort of the conventional knowledge. And I remember I had a conversation with Timothy Snyder, very well known his, historian and thinker. And this was like right after Trump won. And, and we laughed because I was like, I kind of think the brothers knew this was going to happen right and um so it seemed like white people were really confused black people kind of were like yep kind of <laughs> saw this saw the writing on the wall and i i joke about that because i want to ask this question so i'm going to toss it to you Phil in in that thinking of you know black people kind of were like yep election day is going to be a doomsday scenario and white people were like fuck what the hell happened right it seems like there's a classic disconnect there but is is part of that disconnect, and and it's going to kind of come back to what you were saying, Samuel, a little bit, is really the underlying thing that most of these people worshiping is whiteness? Are, are we calling it Christianity because that's what it is classically known as? But in a way, is that just the, the words and the institutions, but are is the adherence really to this notion of whiteness? And, and Christianity being a part in which it operates, but it can also operate in any number of different avenues, right? But but Christianity is the religious thing on top of it, right? But it can economically operate, it can socially operate, it can culturally operate. Are these people just like, whoever defends me being white and me being on top is my guy or gal, as the case might be, <laughs>
1: Uh, That's a great question. I'm going to come back at you with a a quick anecdote about another Yale colleague of mine, Eli Anderson, who's a very famous uh, African-American urban ethnographer. And uh, we were having dinner together in 2008, you know, shortly before the election. And I'm like, Obama's going to win. You know, the white folks are going to vote for him. And, you know, Eli Anderson's like, you know, he's he's gonna. You know, he's. You know, I was like, it's not that racist of a country anymore. He says, oh, you know, America is a really racist country still. So you have no idea, Obama's gonna lose. And I, my, my sort of joke is, we were both half right. You know, I was right about the election. He was right <laughs> about the racism. But I think, I, I think that you know, for a lot of people, you know, younger. I, for a lot of white people, I think that, that the, and I would include myself, you know, white liberals and progressives, I think, you know, because they are not confronted regularly with just, you know, full throated open racism and white supremacism all the time in their everyday lives, way many black Americans are regularly, I think there was just not an awareness. And I think that, like, the, you know, the, the Trump, the sort of Trump election was, was a real, you know, wake up call and real eye opener, you know, for, you know, a lot of white liberals and, and, and white progressives, uh, you know, in that sense. I think that this idea that there, you know, if you kind of look across American history that, you know, there have always been these cycles of progress and backlash, you know, I mean, the classic example is like Civil War and then Reconstruction Era comes along and, you know, it, there really was, you know, for 10, 15 years there like a serious effort at, you know, some kind of righting of the wrongs and, you know, really trying to create a more democratic, inclusive society. And, what, you know, we all know what happened, uh, you know that gets rolled back, Jim Crow gets uh, put put in place, and it's another century, you know, before there's a serious effort. And I think that you just have to see the, you know, the Trump election, you know, against that background, you know, there was a backlash against a black man in the White House, there were just a lot of folks who, you know, just could not tolerate that. And, you know, in a way, it's like, we're going to, not only are we going to elect a white guy, we are going to elect the worst possible white guy you can imagine because he's still better than this unbelievably accomplished, unbelievably smart, unbelievably open-minded black guy, right? Just to really stick it in you and know, just really, you know, put a stick in your eye. That's what we're that's what we're gonna do. I really do feel there was an element of that. And, you know, I think it is in some ways about about whiteness. So I th- I think for I think one of the things about white Christian nationalism is just the way that, you know, all those things get kind of smooshed together so that, you know, for, you know, a lot of white Christians, you know, when you, if you mention Christian to them, like what picture comes up in their mind? Well, you know, somebody who looks a lot like them. In fact, you know, if you even, you know, say that you say Jesus, what comes up in their mind is a does it sort of like a Jewish, skinny Jewish looking guy come up in their mind, a short, skinny Jewish looking guy? No like some tall skinned, and avian guy, you know, with like big muscles or, you know, even like some kind of superhero figure comes up in their mind. Jesus
0: definitely has the abs.
1: <laughs> exactly. You know, and so I, I, so absolutely, I think that for a lot of people let whiteness, you know, not just, you know, it, both in the kind of phenotypical sense of like, you know, how you look physically, but I mean, also in the sense of certain kind of, you know, ethnoculture. as Sam puts it. I think that's That is, for a lot of folks, tangled up with Christianity. And, you know, there's still enough of a stigma around being a racist in in the United States that it feels a lot more comfortable to say that I'm standing up for Christian civilization or Judeo-Christian values or, um, you know, traditional America than to say, hey, I'm standing up for, you know, the white race. I mean, you know, only the fringy, real, car carrying neo-Nazi types uh, say that and you don't want to be one of them or at least you know most people don't want to be one of them.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, I think that gives us an opportunity to to talk about January 6th, right? Because that was another moment where I, I remember seeing you know, watching it unfold, right? And, you know, Sam, I think you made a point about paying attention, right? Like leading up to the inauguration and leading up to January 6th and leading up to the election. I feel, again, like a lot of thinkers, a lot of Black women, you know, others, you know, were like, look, these motherfuckers are crazy, right? Like, it was always like, you know, just to speak very plainly, I'm I'm cutting through all their fancy words and using my kind of more simple words. It's like, folks have were like, look, these motherfuckers are unhinged. And a lot of other folks, you know, I think these white liberals feel that you remarked on would be like, oh, it's not going to be so bad. We've always had a peaceful transfer of power. This isn't going to be a big deal. And then it, it was a big deal. And and even as it was unfolding, I remember to myself thinking like, okay, this is white people acting like white people, right? Like their their hockey team lost and now they're going to burn the shit down, <laughs> right? So even in, it's, in it being like terrible, it kind of was like, okay, I've seen this, right? I've seen National troops trying to get kids into schools in Little Rock. I've seen northern cities erupt in violence because of busing, right? I grew up in New York. I remember Howard Beach. Our Benson, I mentioned Bensonhurst. I lived through all those things. So January 6th, I kind of was like, Meh. this is just the latest example of white people, white people. So how do we like, so Sam, I'm going to throw it to you. And both of you can opine on this one if you want. That's not to make light of it. Right, because I on the flip side, I actually do think that the scholarship, not just in your book, by but by others, is to say, like, look, this was the, the beer hall putsch. Right, they didn't quite get it done this time, but you know what? A lot of them cops were right there in cahoots, right? The military's filled with these types and, and others. Mm-hmm. So the next time we might not get off so lucky. <laughs> so how do we How do we think about that and frame that where we both point the direction to those like yourselves who have been paying attention and also prepare for the next round of this? Because this is not going away, right? So both of you can feel free to jump in, but I, I answer Sam first, and then Phil, if you want to have some thoughts, go for it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think first, as just as it relates to our work, I mean, I think, you know, we could we could see i mean obviously symbolically there was all kinds of evidence of white christian nationalism throughout that that event right like you've got the flags and you've got the banners and you've got the impromptu worship sessions and you've got even the prayer in the senate chamber in which they're using this very very explicit like you know this is our nation not theirs and we've taken it back thanks for allowing the you know Heavenly father for allowing america to be reborn this day you know like there's very very much in their minds going on that this is We're taking without without saying we're taking it back for Christians. They're definitely saying, hey, we're going to take this back for people like us. And that is all implied in that. And I think that goes along with the whiteness conversation, like whiteness is in there. Christianity is in there. But it's this kind of ethno culture. Our kind of people our kind of American understanding. I, I think there is. And we wrote the book for this very reason. I think there is very real danger. Uh, as Americans become more polarized and not just polarized in terms of like, you know, hey, we're socially sorting, but 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 they are moving towards extremes in the sense that they are more distrustful. There's greater hostility towards the enemy, uh, to towards your political opponent, to where they are not just your political opponent. They are instruments of Satan. Uh, they are demonic and, and, and therefore justify violence and to be able to uh, to be able to stop them and to be able to fight uh, their agenda. We are now seeing this kind of rhetoric ramp up. You you see Michael Flynn and Roger Stone and Giuliani like going on this Reawaken America tour where they are traveling around the country using that same kind of language, talking about like stolen election, talking about COVID denial, talking about all of these kind of and and using this very like us versus them demonic forces. We have got to fight to to make sure that we preserve that, and I, I think that is. Uh, Something that is tremendously worrisome. You are you're absolutely correct. Like this kind of like white people being white people and doing what white people do when they feel like their power is threatened and taken taken away from them. Yet I feel I feel like if anything novel is emerging from this is is that with Trump, it became normalized. And, and highly visible, and his his complete violation of presidential norms, and bragging about it. I mean, and he still hasn't suffered any consequences from it. Like still, like, and everybody sees this. Everybody knows that there is now no consequences for doing what you do. You can still walk around scot free. You can still talk about it. Uh, churches will invite you in to to you know to to give the Christmas message. You know, like, and still like after all of this. So uh, I think that is perhaps most worrisome for me is that if there are no consequences for anybody up up at the top. Who, who, who did this? Then we, as a nation, have decided that this is this is completely fair and legitimate. Uh, that you can just uh, disseminate lies, uh, that you can foment hostile uh, insurrections, and uh, you know, hey, it didn't work out, but like you know, you're we don't we don't want to rock the boat too much or cause political hostility, so we're not going to punish you. I mean, I think this is uh, tremendously worrisome. And Phil, if you wanted to jump in there,
1: sure, just to, just to sort of uh, you know. Piggyback on that a little bit. So one way we talk about how this works in the book is we talk about the holy trinity of white Christian nationalism, freedom, order and violence, which means freedom for people like us, which is above all white native born conservative Christian men, order for everybody else. You know, that means hierarchy, that means borders, that means, you know, everybody else staying in their place. And then righteous violence, you know, against anybody who who steps out of line. And you can completely see this in the way in which, you know, sort of black political demonstrations and sort of white political violence are seen in very starkly different terms, you know, like Black Lives Matter. Oh, you know, that was just, that was disorder, that was disruption, that was violence. What was January sixth? Well, that was patriots standing up for their freedom, or we just don't remember at all. Like you know, ask folks about the like my age at least about the, the La Brea. Oh yeah, that was really bad. Bensonhurst. Oh, what was that? Right. I mean, it's just the, the things are just not part of our, our our collective memory. You know, because of this sort of myth of uh, of sort of white white innocence that has to be preserved. I mean, in terms of what has to be done. I mean, I am. You know, there is evidence that uh, people are, survey evidence at least, that people are starting to realize that democracy itself is seriously in danger. I think that's part of, you know, why these most recent special elections have gone unexpectedly well for the Democrats. And I, you know, I think that the, you know, I think at least for a little while, we've got to, you know, ally with some people we may have strong disagreements with. Like, I can't think of anything I agree with Liz Cheney about except for democracy and Donald Trump. Those are the only two things.
0: And and that gives me a good segue. I'm I'm glad you met Again, another thing you will seldom hear on the show is uh, a mention of Liz Cheney that is welcomed. Um, But I'll use it because you said something, Phil, there that I think was really interesting. Both both of you did, but I want to pull out your point about this notion of innocence. And I want to connect it to Liz Cheney as an avatar because oftentimes we talk about men, you know, white men, white Christian nationalists, men, And they are clearly leaders in this, in this movement, but, you know, white women are right out there yelling and screaming with, with the best of them. Right. And I'm curious how, how that factors into this idea of, of the white Christian nationalism, because it is so much buttressed in quote unquote family values. Right. So I'm using their language though, with the disclaimer, I don't believe none of their bullshit. But family values is a thing that exists. And a, and a big part of that is the quote unquote nuclear family where the woman is at home supporting her her man and, you know, this sort of anti-feminism um, and, and empowerment that's tied to a lot of different movements. So I think of like the work of someone like Jesse Daniels who I've had on the show before. She's a sociologist based here in New York that talks about like nice white women, right? So long preamble to say with the Liz Cheney's, yes, she's against Trump, but she also voted with Trump 95% of the time or some high percentage of the time, right? So not to bash her, but in a very specific way, the role that white women and that veil of innocence plays a part in these white Christian nationalism and in the white story. Like, have you guys seen that experienced that dealt with that to, to some degree? Because it seems like another sort of hidden thing that we don't talk about as much. You know, Melania was there waving her hands. She was one of the main birther people, right? But she kind of gets off less than, than Trump does in comparison, right? So, you know, Sam, I'll throw it to you. Or is it, Phil, is your turn? I've lost track. Whoever wants to jump in there, it's a free for all.
2: Sure. sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think I, I think that's a a great point. I think when you see like a Lauren Boebert or a Marjorie Taylor Green, uh, I think overtly making these kinds of uh, Christian nationalist claims. In fact, Marjorie Taylor Green now, uh, you know, uh, drawing a lot of attention to Christian nationalism herself by saying, "Hey, I think we just ought to embrace the label. The Republican Party ought to be the party of Christian nationalism." She goes up in front of crowds now and says hey, I'm a Christian nationalist, and I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of, and and so really getting out there and and, and owning that label. Uh, I think, though, I would say white Christian nationalism, we have lots of data to back this up, is super patriarchal. That primarily emerges out of, I I think, a a fetishization of social order, of like a rigid social order where people know their place and there is an arrangement that is traditionalist. Uh, You can see this in other evidence, this is not in the book, but in a, a subsequent study that we've just published, uh, we find that Christian nationalist ideology is very, very strong predictor that uh, you you want to promote national what you call nationalist pronatalism that we as Americans and the right kind of Americans should be having more babies for the nation like that we ought this ought to alarm us that our fertility rates are declining. Uh, this is one of those things that actually unites us with places like Russia and Hungary that are also very concerned about their own fertility, and it is because of racism is because of xenophobia is because they don't want their population their pristine pure population being replaced by outsiders so we've got to have more babies for the nation but that is wrapped up the patriarchy it's wrapped up into social order and making sure that we kind of uh, stay that way so you have uh these women i think are going to bat for these far right uh, Christian nationalist, I think, causes and values. I think they get platformed because, in some ways, it's it's a it's a mascot. In some ways, it's a, a highly patriarchal and I think misogynist kind of ideology and movement that says, "Look, these women are also fully on board." With what we're trying to do here they want to advocate for this and, and it becomes in many ways if we want to bring uh another not just a gender but a race angle into it the candace owens kind of effect where you've got you've got a woman but also a black woman who is also going to bat hard for the far right and people platform her and say like look you know like obviously you know how can you say we're racist candace owens you know or how can you yeah. say we're sexist marjorie taylor green and candace owens and so i think there is a there is a an eagerness to use those kinds of speakers and, and and very like overtly like eager angry uh ready to ready to go to fight for that kind of cause because that is kind of a uh, backing up their like bona fides like hey we're innocent here we're not sexist or racist
0: i i love this conversation despite the fact that it is mentioning some of the most heinous and terrible people <laughs> that i that i absolutely detest We're I some
2: extreme examples for sure
0: no man but you know what's sad is that they, these are the examples right and i and i think unfortunately these these folks are they there's so many people out there who listen to these people believe in them they might not have the platforms But unfortunately, there's there's a lot of Candace Owens, right? Like, you know, there's always that one that would that would tell that the others were trying to get away, right? So (laughs) she's existed, she's existed for as as long as I could remember, right? There's always one that's gonna go knock on the door. They're they're leaving, you know. Call the cops, right? I want to get you guys out on on this because I am keeping an eye on time. And so Phil, I'm gonna throw this one over to you, which is. This idea of, of education, you know, this has sort of been running in the back of my mind for a long time that the the attack that you see that conservatives have generally on this notion of public schools attacking teachers. And this is like one of their long-term projects, right? Like I feel like desegregation led them into private schools, Christian academies, just anything to get their kids away from going to school with black and brown kids. and And fast forward, they can regulate that education, which leaves out a lot of the stuff that you talk about in the book, right? And they can keep that American mythological story going because they just won't tell the truth, right? So anything that tells the truth becomes something to be attacked. 1619 Project, Howard Zinn, doesn't matter, right? Anything that tells the truth is is bad. So I want to give you an a opportunity to kind of talk about the way that education and, and the privatization of that through these Christian academies helps to buttress this idea of, of, of white nationalism. So I'll give you some time for that. And then if we can, I want to squeeze in your drops because I'm sure they were good and then we'll be done.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I just, it's, it's an excellent point. And, um, you know, like, if you look at the textbooks that are used in Christian academies and, by Christian homeschoolers especially the history and government textbooks you know the history textbooks are just you know they're just a deep story you know in, in in pure form a lot of them and you know the government textbooks are all about you know america is just about freedom you know meaning sort of freedom for people like us or maybe it's also about property and that's uh, that's about the, that's about the end of the story And so, of course, like, uh, you know, public schools are are sort of a threat to that, especially, you know, insofar as public schools do teach a somewhat more critical version of history. Although, I mean, let's seriously not kid ourselves. I mean, you know, we sent all of our kids to the public schools, apart from Black History Month and, you know, maybe people reading a couple of Martin Luther King speeches. I mean, again, that's, that's, you know, better than not doing that at all, Uh, you know, the idea that there's some extremely critical version of American history that's being taught in the public schools. It's just, you know, complete silliness. I mean, really, you know, what's going on is there is uh, it's not that there's some radical version of American history that's being taught. It's just they want this completely whitewashed version of American history taught where America always has been, always will be, you know, uh, uh, you know, an exceptional nation that's a force for good in the world. And you know we just don't want to hear about you know any of the sins of the past, um, you know. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, the you know all these discussions about history that are going on are really discussions about politics, and sort of making it sound as if this is just about you know families and not about race is crazy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If I I, I jokingly say if it wasn't for a Public Enemy and and you know. Eyes on a prize, I'd have been one confused kid growing up. (laughs) So I'm I'm grateful for those things, having added something to a a poor public school education. So I want to thank you both for for being on the show. If we have one second, I want to get us to the the drop. And the drop is just any recommendation that we can give to our, our listeners. I'll go really first with mine. It's a show called For All Mankind. It has actually three seasons on Apple TV, but I'm new to it, I just finished the first season. And it's a a show that is a revisionist history of the American journey in space. So it's basically and this is not a spoiler. What if the Russians were the first to land on the moon, and and then the show launches from there? I started it on a on a recent trip, and it was it's a really really fascinating show. I'm surprised it's gone three seasons with it without it being on my radar before that. So that's my drop, and I'll throw it to you, Sam, for your drop or drops, and then Phil, you'll wrap us up.
2: Sure. Uh, one book I'm recommending to, to everybody is a, a recent history book by a guy named Jay Russell Hawkins called The Bible Told Them So. Uh, and it's, it is a history of, of, of white evangelical racism in the South. And, and, uh, the, the premise of the book is that, you know, people make the argument that during the civil rights movement, only one group of people was led by their kind of theology to like, you know, address civil rights. That was the black church. And, and he would argue that like, actually there was this huge theology of segregation that was driving white evangelicals in the South to oppose this. And so he, he talks about, and that, uh, you know, just, just briefly, he, he talks about how that, that theology of segregation, where they really did, and he has all the receipts to show it, It this theology of segregation that says God wants us separate, uh, and to violate that is to violate the Bible and and those kinds of things, that over time uh, transitions into the colorblind racial theology that we see within the evangelical church. And he, he talks about, just to your point, uh, Philip is he, he talks about uh, the transition to uh, private education in the 1980s and with Reagan and the family values talk and so he, he he crafts this wonderful narrative of how that kind of theology of racism or that racist theology in in the during the civil rights movement became what we see today essentially and so blew my mind that's a fantastic book great read and just receipts for days that I would just uh, if anybody's interested in that history
0: awesome awesome and Phil
1: yours. Well, that, that is a great book. And I'll just say one more thing about it, which is you, know, you can even see this in the, in the sort of most kind of progressive versions of some evangelicalism, you know, in this talk about racial reconciliation, you know, where reconciliation is like, you know, suggests that somehow African-Americans owe it to white Americans to somehow reconcile with them as, you know, when what's really required is, you know, basically, you know, kind of Apology and, you know, confession, not reconciliation. But I'll recommend another book, which another great book for folks who are interested in following up on this, uh, kind of the gender angle. And this is by a uh, historian named Christian Cobez Dumay. Won't maybe remember her name, but you will not forget the title, which is Jesus and John Wayne. And that is basically uh, about uh, how American masculinity and American Christianity and uh, you know you couldn't really make John Wayne into Jesus, so you had to make Jesus into John Wayne if I can put it that way. so the you know the way in which this kind of culture of of masculinity and patriarchy just is shot through uh, a lot of contemporary American Christianity.
0: Oh, that's awesome! Thank, thank you both for those awesome recommendations. So, and I have more reading to do. Um, but thanks so much for joining me on on the deep dive. Thanks for your patience at the very beginning of this. And again, the book is called The Flag and the Cross. It's a astounding read. I think it's a must read for anyone who wants to understand uh, a potential road for this country. And again, Philip Gorski, Samuel Perry, I want to thank you both for being on the deep dive with me.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us on, Phil.
0: You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via @farflungphil. Phil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.